You are listening to the Inclusive Classroom series for teachers and educators. Inclusion Ed provides evidence-based, research-informed teaching practices and tools to support diverse learners in inclusive classrooms. In this limited series, you'll learn about neurodiversity and anxiety in the classroom, foundation practices for early career teachers, and how to positively engage families. Hello everyone, I'm Nicole Torres, former teacher and now education community coordinator at Autism CRC and your host for today's webinar. I'd like to welcome you to our very first webinar for the year, Anxiety in the Classroom. This is the first of five webinars in our Inclusive Classroom series. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which uh, the lands on which we're all meeting today, which for me is the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin, and recognise their connection to country. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect, respect to any First Nations people who are with us today. If you're looking for a space where you can find evidence-based best practice for teaching, look no further than inclusioned.edu.au. If you haven't already registered and checked out our practices and resources, you can register for free to access the full range of resources and information. So let's get on with it. Today, we will be discussing anxiety in the classroom and here with us to provide some insights are Associate Professor Dawn Adams and Catherine Ambrose from Griffith University and Dr. Jen, Jack Denhouting from Macquarie University. Dawn is the Director of the Autism Centre of Excellence and a clinical psychologist. Catherine is a teacher with qualifications in autism and mental health and Jack is an autistic activist and research psychologist. Thank you all for joining us today. So let's get into it. Um, mental health in general, but especially anxiety has become, have become really important topics of conversation in recent years more broadly. But what do we know about autism and anxiety in the school setting? Thanks, Nick. So um, I'm just going to start by sharing some information around what anxiety is. Uh, so we all know what we're kind of discussing today. So um, we all talk a lot about anxiety, especially in the last few years, but it's important to recognize anxiety's actually got a clear definition. So it's a mental state and it involves a subjective feeling of worry and apprehension in response to a perceived threat. The important words in there are subjective. So if that person feels worry or apprehension, they're feeling anxiety. We can't question that. The other important word is perceived threat. If somebody thinks that something is a threat to them, that's that's their experience. We need to acknowledge that and sort of recognize that that will lead to their anxiety. When someone experiences anxiety, there are multiple responses. So physiological responses in your body might be increased heart rate, sweaty palms, psychological. So we're more likely to look out for danger or uh, things that scare us and behavioral. So we tend to avoid things um, or seek safety. So, um, you know, only do things with a parent or only do things with a peer. Now, this has an overlap with uh, fear, but it's different. So fear is about a present danger. So if there was a fire in this building, I'd be feeling fear rather than anxiety, which is a, a perceived threat. Someone can have anxiety, um, but not have an anxiety disorder. You might only get diagnosed with an anxiety disorder if it's having a lasting impact on multiple aspects of your life. And it's kind of on a scale. So you can have all of us experience small amounts of anxiety. That's important. That keeps us safe. Then you can have children with heightened anxiety and then you get to anxiety disorder. 
Now, what we know about anxiety in autistic students is that it is significantly higher than in neurotypical students. So anxiety is about seven times higher in autistic students than neurotypical students. Uh, and just to note, while we talk about it, depression is also significantly higher, about 10 times higher. And it's also really common to have multiple mental health conditions. So when we talk about autism and anxiety, we need to think about autism with anxiety, but also maybe the presence of other mental health conditions too. Uh, some people are interested in certain types of anxiety, and we'll unpack these a little bit uh, later. But this is a study from uh, a research group uh, in Canada. And you can see if, uh, that the rates of anxiety on the typically developing, which is the first row of numbers down the middle, um, so for any anxiety disorder, it's around 8% in neurotypically chil neurotypical children, but in the uh, autistic children in this sample, it's 52%. And separation uh, anxiety is about 7% in autistic children, social anxiety, 7%, specific phobias, 44%, and generalized anxiety, 15%. So why we're having a webinar on autism and anxiety is because of these really high rates of anxiety and autism uh, and because of the impact that might have in the classroom. So yeah. Catherine and Jack, over to you. Um, something that, that I think is really important to emphasize on this topic uh, to Dawn is, is that distinction between fear and anxiety um, mm -hmm. and, and recognizing that, um, you know, as you said, anxiety is a response to a perceived threat, whereas fear is a response to an actual threat. Um, and and things that are an actual threat for autistic people might look a little bit different than things that are an actual threat to non-autistic people. Um, so it, it may be easy to, to write off something like um, a, a response to a really loud noise as being anxiety because a non-autistic person may not perceive that as a genuine threat, but for an autistic person, that loud noise may actually be genuinely physically painful and um and and a, a genuine source of danger um so i think it's it's really important to make that distinction between when something is a fear and when something is an is, is anxiety and um, because the way that we're then going to respond is very different uh, did you want to share anything catherine Sorry, just to add to all of that too, um, I think Dawn touched on it at the start, but those figures of 40 or 50% is that clinical anxiety. And I think what we're seeing in the classroom is actually a lot more children than that 40 or 50% may be experiencing anxiety at a level that is impacting them, even if it's not at that clinical level. Mm, yeah. Fantastic, thank you. And I, I never really thought about the, the link between fear and anxiety, but now that you mention it, it makes so much more sense. So that's a really good point. Um, so speaking of the classroom setting, there's, you know, when, when teachers are in there, there's a lot happening all at once. There's, you know, so many distractions. How, may, how might a teacher know if a student is experiencing anxiety? Um, and there, are there different presentations uh, for students on the autism spectrum? Yep, so, um, I, and I think Jack might, want to say this also I mean we would always say ask someone but also we need to know what to look for so um what's been really interesting in the research literature in the last nearly 10 years now is that um we've shown that there's been a lot of uh typical anxiety signs such as those you would see in the dsm-5 manual to diagnose anxiety um so hypervigilance and um but then there's also these autism distinct 
symptoms of anxiety. Um, and they link to uh, anxiety around special interests and not being able to access the special interest or something happening. Um, <laughs> unusual specific fears which are not like your normal snakes or the dark um examples from uh, connor kearns's work is around uh beards uh being a common phobia or masks um social fearfulness so this is um being anxious about social situation not because you are worried what someone might think of you which is social anxiety it's about not knowing what to do um sort of go not knowing what to do when you go in and then there's a huge proportion of uh, children who experience a fear or a negative reaction to change. So being anxious about unknown events or anxious uh, about uh, events that might be different or sort of unpredictable. So this led us to do uh, a bit of work as one of the CRC studies, which was actually if we've got these different types of anxiety, do we have the different ways they present? And we asked parents uh, and we also asked teachers, but this is the parent data about how anxiety presents in their children. Um, and we asked them for homeschool and community. So I'll focus on the school for this webinar. Um, one in five parents told us that their children hide or shut down when they're anxious. Almost one in five parents told their us that their children will cry when they get anxious and one in five parents told us that their children find it really hard to do what's asked of them when they're anxious it's really important uh that we keep these in mind because when you see children hiding or running away or crying or not uh, following through with tasks we need to be thinking is this due to anxiety rather than is this due to somebody um sort of misbehaving and i think that um uh, judgment between what is a presentation of anxiety and linked to a physiological, you know, or a psychological response versus behaviour is something that a lot of teachers, uh, you need to get to know the child to understand well, where that difference is. I think following on from that, um, some other research that we've done where uh, students themselves were talking about how anxiety impacts them. They talked about um, freezing and shutting down, which was overlapping with the parent reports, but also they talked about masking their feelings. So not masking their autism characteristics, but hiding their anxiety uh, from the people around them in the school environment, particularly, so their teachers and their peers. And they also talked about um, sometimes their uh, behaviour would look or uh, or they would feel angry in response to their anxiety, which again, overlaps with those behavioural signs of uh, non-compliance so I think we really need to think broadly if um, if we're not sure whether a child's experiencing anxiety or not about how that might be presenting for them. Jack did you have something to add there? Um, yeah I I, um, I think actually I, I was interested to hear Dawn that um, that masks was one of the common fears because I am terrified of masks um, so I relate to that one. Um, I um, and now I've forgotten what I was actually going to say that was relevant. <laughs> I um oh I think it's I think it's um it's important also to I guess keep in mind that um, for a lot of autistic people um, we experience uh, really quite high levels of of a trait called alexithymia, um, which is a difficulty in sort of recognizing and identifying our emotions. Um, and a lot of us also struggle with interoception, which is um, recognizing our body's internal cues. 
Um, so um, you you may even find that um, you know there's an, an autistic student in a class who is really anxious but isn't actually able to recognize that what they're feeling is anxiety. Um, maybe not recognizing the the physical um, sort of signs of anxiety that their body is sending them, um, or recognizing that something's going on but not able to actually name it and label it as anxiety. Um, so yeah. I think that's something also where um, teachers or other support people can can sort of work through that potentially with the child and help them to figure out for themselves what their signs of anxiety are, as well oh. as learning what that child's external cues are. And, and I think that's a really, sorry, go. Hello. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that's a really good point, um, especially considering Dawn's slide about how that can uh, present in different ways in different environments so um, you know there's not one uniform way that it presents in one particular environment so um, something to keep in mind. And that's where um, we'll, and we'll probably come back to this point several times that homeschool communication it's not surprising children might present differently at home to school. I present differently at work and at home uh, and so why wouldn't a student do the same so this often in research, and I know out in a, in the non-research world, this disagreement often is seen as someone missing something or, mm. or being inaccurate, but actually it just tells us about different environmental aspects and the impact that has on someone's uh, anxiety. So, you know, if, if the parents are experiencing uh, different behaviours at home at reflect anxiety, well, that's exactly what we're seeing in the research literature, and that makes sense. So, we as a team um, see different informants as telling you more about environmental elements um, and, and the skills that are present in certain environments that can't be used in others. And it really helps you when you look at it in a kind of a positive way to think, OK, why is why is he able to do this at home? But actually at school, he can't tell me that or, um, you know, I think it's just if you flip it to a positive, it becomes a, a, a source of information rather than a source of an um, kind of discontent between the informants mm. and I suppose approaching it with a kind of a bit of a curiosity like it, as you mentioned like oh why why is that different there and you know what how it might present differently um it was also interesting to note um the the fear of change was a big one um and obviously you know students go through a whole lot of transitions uh, all throughout this their schooling years um and I can imagine that these signs of uh, anxiety can kind of change over time. So how does this presentation change as they grow? Um, are there differences as they're getting older? Yeah, so um, what's really nice is I'm going to show what a piece of Jack's research here. So, um, <laughs> so uh, Jack in their PhD looked uh, at the uh, presentation. Oh, I should be leaving you to talk about this, Jack. But, um, <laughs> uh, the presentation of different forms of anxiety uh, in and. Jack took a 10 to 11 year old group and um, Dev Keen had done a, a five to six year old group. Um, and it's really interesting because we see the same most common and the same least common um, types of anxiety. Uh, but the other types of anxiety change in the middle. So this graph or all these uh, graphics, the bar at the top is the most common, the bar at the bottom is the least common. So the most common um, type of anxiety is, is that challenge with uncertainty um, and a fear of um, being scared of not knowing. The least common aspect of anxiety was anxious arousal. 
So that's the physiological symptoms. And that links exactly back to what Jack was just saying. You know, many autistic people experience this different different differences or difficulties with alexithymia interoception so recognizing those butterflies in the tummy or the uh, racing heart might be harder um, but in younger children we tend to see a high prevalence of separation anxiety from parents and um, or from a object or a safe item uh, whereas in uh, the those moving into more secondary age we see a elevated level of performance anxiety um, and that uh, is you know the fear is what someone might think of you so it's very much linked to social anxiety and and very much then feeds into perfectionism uh so the uh, being scared to do something for what someone might evaluate you negatively or what they might think of you can you expand on that a bit more jack i'm considering it was your research <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, have to try and remember back to my PhD. <laughs> I look. I think. I think if you think about how anxiety presents in non-autistic children, um, I think it makes sense that we see that change in the separation anxiety and the performance anxiety as children get older. Um, you know, we we do tend um, in in non-autistic children, we do tend to see separation anxiety. Um, particularly around sort of not wanting to be separated from parents um, more when they are younger. Um, and the performance anxiety, it makes sense that we would then see that starting to emerge more as sort of academic pressures and social pressures um, become, become more of an issue as children are sort of getting into that prepubescent and, and early pubescent age range. Um, I think the the intolerance of anxiety the anxiety around change and around not knowing um, what's what's going to happen is a particularly tricky one with autistic children um, because um, of course we know that um, a preference for routine and and a, just a dislike for change and unpredictability in general is a, a characteristic of autism and it's part of being autistic um, I think so it's I think it's quite important to differentiate um, the preference for routine from the anxiety associated with preference for routine, if that makes sense. So it's entirely possible um, to prefer things to be routine and the same and predictable without actually having that added layer of worrying about whether things are going to change and um, whether, you know, whether there's going to be something unpredictable. Um, so I think, I think we need to sort of be careful that we're not um, trying to change the preference for routine, which is just a part of being autistic, um, but at the same time helping children to manage if they are getting that worry and anxiety about the need for routine. Um, so it's, it's quite a fine line there, and I think it's probably um, going to be quite difficult to differentiate when it's anxiety and when it's not in sort of a practical sense. Um, but I think it, it is also something to keep in mind. Yeah, a really good point. Catherine, did you have something to spend on with that? Yeah, I think it's also, um, uh, I think as adults we underestimate how much unpredictability um, and change happens in that school environment and 
that uh, just because we as adults know that something is going to happen, maybe we've done it as teachers the same way all year and we're now in term three, um, but that uh, children, all children, um, don't necessarily make those assumptions that just because it's happened the same, it's going to. And I think that's where some of that worry can creep in. What if? What if? something does change what if um it's not the same as it's always been and so I think sometimes um just remembering that you may be in that state of not knowing that uh that the routines may be maintained or that things will be the same is an important perspective to keep in mind uh in order to support students mm, fantastic yeah and there was a study out last year um, which uh, was asked parents about which aspects of their child's life prov uh, so provoked uncertainty and this kind of fear around uncertainty. And 50% of the parents said that their school's child, uh, their child's school was an uncertain situation. And that included homework, uh, actually, for some mm. people. So um, uh, actually taking, uh, going back to Jack's point earlier, you know, allowing an autistic lens on what might be uh, the perceived threat or the uncertain situation so you might think that your classroom is very predictable or your lesson is very predictable but uh, you know your autistic students might be seeing that through a different lens or um, so uh, being willing to uh, see it from a different way and, and see if, if it is anything you can uh, provide a bit more predictability and certainty around because uh, we know that when people have a problem with uncertainty it's they actually are uh, hypothesizing that something bad will happen so I don't know who's going to be my substitute teacher they could be a, you know a witch or an alien or something awful because <laughs> that's what anxiety does anxiety doesn't predict boring things because or else you wouldn't get it wouldn't be a perceived threat um, and if you think about times that you didn't know something uh you always perceive something really bad you don't go oh yeah okay I've I've missed my bus there's probably going to be one in three minutes you know with a job interview it's I've missed my bus I'm never going to get there they're never you, you. so imagine feeling that about your day-to-day -day school or your lesson or etc so kind of having that lens on it and, and reading and uh this, this, that's a lovely paper it's by Goodwin um 2022 um listening to uh self-reports on YouTube from autistic uh, advocates they just give you that lovely insight into things that you didn't even realize were causes of uncertainty mm that's such a good point and that's something I keep coming back to in my teaching career my former teaching career um whenever I was a casual teacher that there would sometimes be some students that would be really really shocked that I was there and who are you and I've never seen you before it's it's akin to you know you show up at work and suddenly your boss is a different person and what I, I have to take orders from you I'm confused now so um so it completely makes sense that um that 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 would have those kinds of feelings as well. Um, so in thinking about that, what can be done in the classroom environment to build that predictability and help support the students um, that, you know, might have difficulties with uncertainty? Catherine, did you use that? Yeah, so I think it's important to think about predictability and routine and support for predictability and routine to that goes beyond uh, the things that many of us already use, like schedules and timetables. I think that those things are really important and pre-warning for changes is important. Um, but I think sometimes 
um, reassuring students about what might be the same in what's coming up, as well as pointing out those differences can be really reassuring. So we're going to do this activity again tomorrow, but we're going to use different materials, uh, trying to make changes small and incremental as you go through um, your year as well with that student. Um, and I also think that that predictability and support around uncertainty goes uh, can actually be a part of your relationship building with that student. So being predictable in the way that you communicate with them and the responses that you give certain um, situations and uh, being, being predictable in yourself as a teacher, um, even using the same kind of phrases uh, can be reassuring to some students or approaching things in the same way. So thinking beyond um, beyond the scheduling and the timetabling uh, to what you can make certain for them and how you can reassure them about things that will be the same and things that might be different. Um, Pre-warning of changes obviously is really helpful when you know, um, but sometimes you don't know when changes are going to happen as well. So having some mechanisms in place for if something changes, these are um, some strategies or some um, places that you can get support if you're unsure or anxious in that situation. So you may not know, always know uh, when a CRT is going to be taking your class, but if you have a strategy set up for that, that student that they know what they do when a CRT comes into the class, um, sometimes schools set up situations where that um, the autistic child always goes into the next door classroom when there's a CRT, for example. So if that's something that you know is really anxiety provoking for that student, you might be able to set up some certainty or some strategies that helps that particular student manage uncertainty in those situations. So um, there's a few things to think about. Jack, is something to add? Um, I look. I think you can't underestimate the the benefit of pre warning, um, which I know is not always possible in in a practical sense. Sometimes things happen unexpectedly, um, but if there's a change coming up and and you know that that change is coming, um, making sure that that the autistic student is aware and is um, sort of informed and educated as much as possible about what the change is going to look like um, is it can be really beneficial. Um, I think anecdotally, um, and certainly it's my experience, some autistic people actually find it easier to cope with um, a very significant change rather than a small change. Um, so for me, um, for example, I might find it easier to cope with uh, spending the night in a hotel room rather than with using a different brand of body wash in my shower at home. Um, and um, I look, I honestly couldn't tell you why that's the case, um, but, but it is sometimes um, easier to cope with the really big changes. That's not going to be the case for every autistic person. Um, so, so obviously that's about sort of working with the student to figure out what works best for them. Um, but for some students, it may actually be easier to, to make a change sort of in one big hit and just get it over and done with. 
um, and for other students, the, the sort of slow progression a little bit at a time um, will, will be the, the way to go. Um, and again, it's a difficult thing to do in a classroom environment, um, but a lot of autistic people find that having control is really important and um, when something needs to change if we can be the one to make the decision about how and when that change is going to happen and um, that can make it a lot easier to to cope with and um, as adults we have so much more control over our day-to-day -day lives than children do um, and if, if there are ways to sort of enable a student to have a little bit more control over how their day looks, um, that is likely to make it easier for them to cope uh, when things do change or don't go to plan um, or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, fantastic. Um, Jack, your body wash comment made me think we hadn't actually mentioned um, sensory and and how that links to wanting predictability and certainty because uh some of the models around intolerance uncertainty uh really help to explain you know if, if you perceive the world in in a different way in sensory or you know therefore some things are actually as you said earlier painful or aversive or um actually it it really makes sense that you would like predictability and you would like to know that your classroom is going to be the same every day because you know the noise that you can cope with or um and that is really hard in a classroom when you have all the other students who might be making unpredictable noises or levels of discussion or etc so um i think you know when you again when you put that autistic lens on it and you think yeah okay if i found noise really hard and really challenging to cope with of course i would like to know what's coming up because i'd like to know that i'm going to be able to meet you know uh, cope with that um and i think our recognition of um sensory and anxiety and intolerance of uncertainty is growing in the research world but you only have to talk to autistic people and they'll explain it quite simply for you um <laughs> so i think you know sometimes if you're wondering why students can do things one day but are anxious or can't do it another there's all the elements of the sensory environment the anxiety um the well-being sleep etc um they all interact as to whether someone can manage that task. And I think, you know, it's not sensory isn't in one bucket and anxiety in another and a task in another. They all they're all part of the same equation of how much how many spoons that student can give to that task on that day. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point in terms of, you know, tolerance and and when anxiety might present. Um, I'm wondering if there's um, anything in the research that might have some suggestions in terms of, um, uh, you know, perfectionism and um, separation anxieties, if there's anything tangible that teachers might be able to do um, for that. So uh, the perfectionism when you uh, if we go back to some of the things we've been talking about about the, uh, the fear of negative evaluation with the social anxiety um and you know worrying about getting things wrong and you also think about the autism characteristics and you know finding it hard sometimes to um uh generalize and think flexibly between multiple tasks actually doing a task and 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 wanting to it might not be about getting it right it might just be about not failing again 
so you need to work out what it is. Does someone want to get it 100% perfect or do they not want to have to put all that cognitive effort into doing a task, which they found hard to work out what you wanted them to do anyway in the first place, and then to come up with it and do a task. Is it getting it right or is it having to do more, having to correct, having to everything? So that's your first kind of question. Um, and we know perfectionism and some autism characteristics lead to that kind of perfect or failure. Um, and marking leads to that. You know, if we if we tick um, and people get scores, it leads to you have to get it right. So um, a, a lot of it is for me is about modeling from uh, and encouraging uh chances to or opportunities to give things a go try and avoid things terms like trial and error because you're assuming they're going to get it wrong so <laughs> trial and learn trial and grow trial. and when you're thinking about people who interpret language concrete yeah uh, we're using you know you've really got to think about the terms we use so um so yeah so thinking a little bit about is it actually perfectionism as in trying to get things 100 perfect or or is it having to do something having to fail again uh, and then thinking about how can we introduce ways of kind of doing your best and making things better over time rather than uh, it has to be right from the first go um, a really good point Catherine yeah I think building on that it's um we need to think what the child is in interpreting from our instructions as well so um some of my uh, clients so this is uh, not from the research but some of my clients get really worried about doing a rough draft because what happens when you do a rough draft is the teacher then comes and corrects it so they say just I just want to see your best but then they mark it and they tell you all the things that you got wrong and so do you just want to see their best or do you want to actually correct it and improve it so um, uh, just building on what Dawn said that how we present tasks as teachers can really set our students up to feel confident in having a go and that might take time to build um, to for them to really understand what you are asking them for and what your response is going to be and how you're going to respond to their work and to their effort um, and so thinking that through what do we really want them to do do we want them to be confident having a go or do we want to um, see their best work so that we can correct it and and Following through with well, the way that we've set up that activity, I think can help students to feel that there is more trust in the process that we're setting up for them. Mm, really good point. Um, Jack, did you wanna add anything? Um, I, look, I think, I think uh, Dawn and Catherine have covered it pretty well. Um, just, I guess, uh, from my personal experience, um, as someone who is very much a perfectionist, um, something that I have found really helpful um, is, is just um, learning to reframe the way that I think about getting correction, getting feedback, um, which I, I do wish I had learned a lot younger, um, is, is to, 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 um, to think about that sort of, you know, feedback and correction as a learning opportunity rather than as... I got something wrong um, you know the idea that this was it was already good to start with but this was made it better rather than this was wrong and mm. it was right um, I guess I guess it's 
you know, uh, autistic people, we tend to have that very black and white thinking. So it's, it's wrong or right. And if it's wrong, then everything's a disaster. And it can be very easy to get caught into that spiral. Um, and it takes time to, to learn the, the gray area thinking. Um, but I think if we can support students to, um, and, and model that, um, to, to, I guess, be more comfortable with the gray area, um, that's something that I certainly found very beneficial. Mm. And you say modeling, Jack, I mean, I, it makes me think how often do adults invite feedback from children, uh, you know, and, and actually modeling how you deal with that feedback, because uh, I don't think we do. Um, and how much do we model failing and actually working our way through it? I always say to parents, like, you need to model failure uh, so, and, and teach yourself a way out or ask your child for advice so they can problem solve mm. you and feel confident that, oh, I, you know, other people do fail and or make mistakes and it's not failing. It's just um, so often we can do so much by modeling and, uh, and being what we're trying to, you know, show what we're trying to see in the the children we're working with or supporting mm. and separation anxiety I think is a huge one uh and and Jack you might have bits to add from your personal experience but we do see it's not always with a parent it could be with an object or an item um and actually uh, in in neurotypical children the, the advice is very much just you know go to school they'll deal with it they'll console themselves over time but actually my experience clinically is that many autistic children won't console themselves over time it will be a distressing day for a long period so um working away with each family about it's not about ripping a band-aid off because this uh this separation is often a lot uh, the, the attachment or the reliance on a parent is often a lot stronger and if you think about uh you know young autistic children have probably had their parents uh explain the world to them make it safe make sure everything's fine for for many years and going to school when they're on their own that's that that is hard so uh making sure we're uh, considerate to the uh experience of someone who can't recognize their emotions as a young autistic person or might not be able to label them and might be scared of feeling those emotions uh when you're away from your mum and uh black and white thinking if mum's not here then not being able to work out where she is and that might be a negative prediction so I'm always very uh, uh I think we need to treat separation anxiety with a lot of kind of respect and be very careful to support the autistic young student to transition into school with uh, a really positive sense rather than hoping that they will just get over the separation in a few days I think um yeah what what you um mentioned about sort of the attachment to objects um, as well as is really interesting, Dawn. I saw a paper um, maybe a, a year or two ago with that, one of the greatest titles I think I've ever seen, um, which was, um, this paper will be very sad if you don't read it. Um, and, and, and it was a paper about um, autistic uh, people and uh, anthropomorphism, I believe is, is the term. Um, and, and um, they, they essentially found that autistic people have a much higher tendency to attribute human qualities to non-human objects. Mm. Um, and that's something I very much relate to. Um, I, I have, you know, objects, um, a lot of objects in, in my life um, that, um, that I am very attached to, not just because I like the object, but because um, there's there's sort of a sense of empathy there. Um, an example that comes to mind is I have 
a, a few sort of decorative cushions around the house that have pictures of um, cats and and sort of um, cartoon characters on them. Um, and the cushions have to be the right way up with the cat sitting the right way <laughs> up because otherwise that cushion is uncomfortable. It's <laughs> um, and, and obviously I recognise logically that that's not the case, but I feel quite uncomfortable if I think that cushion is uncomfortable. Um, so I think, um, yeah, important to keep in mind that those connections to objects for autistic people can be much, I guess, much deeper and much more meaningful than they may be for a non-autistic person. Um, and it, it may not be as easy as just leaving the object at home um, because, it, you know, the child might be worried about how the object feels. Um, and... Uh, on top of that, obviously, you know, there could be sensory um, benefits they have from from that object and a whole host of other things um, that that tie into that. I hadn't heard that. So that's really fascinating. I, that's, yeah, a really good point. And especially when when, you know, we might be thinking, oh, it's just this little thing, but it means so much more. Um, Catherine, did you want to add something? Yeah, I just very quickly, I think sometimes the other thing that can be discounted is um, the student's uh, attachment and reliance on peers and good peers that they have got that connection with, um, that, uh, you know, schools set up their classrooms every year and they spend a lot of time working out which class and which, um, which children are going to work well together and which teachers are going to work well with them, but really want to highlight the importance that, uh, of trying to respect the autistic students um, preference for uh, uh, often one peer uh, and sometimes I've uh, seen that work really really well where the peer is taking on the role of a bit of a mentor a bit of a guide and a reassuring presence for that student and that uh, if we're looking at trying to reduce anxiety in the classroom then it's really important to recognise where those relationships are and try to honour that for that student. That's, that's a really good point too. And it kind of sounds like both of, you know, both perfectionism and separation anxiety have a lot to do with kind of fostering a growth mindset and trust in the classroom, trust in the teacher, um, which I, I kind of want to um, throw to you a bit more, Catherine, because, you know, when we're talking about this kind of culture of support, um, trust is obviously a big part of establishing that support. Um, so the research suggests that when teachers have established flexible and trusting relationships with their anxious students, the students felt this impacted their school outcomes as a whole. Uh, can you expand yeah. a bit more on that? Yeah, so we've done a couple of uh, different pieces of research in this area. One was interviewing young adults about their experiences of anxiety in the school environment, and they were reflecting on those from their school days. Uh, and they were um, the group that really highlighted how, even though they were anxious or when they were anxious, if they had a good and supportive and trusting relationship with a teacher, it made managing the impacts of that anxiety easier. And where that relationship didn't exist, uh, it was harder for them to try and work through some of those impacts and, and reduce the impacts. Um, but the luckily those adults and also another study that we've done with uh, primary and secondary school students talking about their own impacts of anxiety right now 
um, in the school environment gives us some guidance on how we can try and reduce those impacts. So, um, and how to support those relationships in a way that, that uh, helps that to happen in the classroom. So one of the things that uh, comes up time and time again is uh, that students report that their communication can be impacted by anxiety. And it's really important to, to remember that that's over and above any communication differences that they might experience as part of their autism. So uh, they're saying that when they feel anxious, they find it harder to listen and understand what people are saying to them. And they also find it harder to communicate in the classroom or in the school environment with their teachers. Um, and with their peers, but particularly where they need to initiate. So asking for help with their work, asking for more information. Um, and so I think that what the adults then told us about that was that having flexible communication modes and additional support for communication in those situations where they were anxious was really, really helpful to them. So for the older students, they gave examples like being able to email their teacher, even if they're sitting in the classroom with them, having an alternative format for that, for that communication that didn't involve um, exposing themselves. And that's where we come back to that performance anxiety, not wanting to uh, be embarrassed or feel like people might be judging them negatively. So having private uh, and um, less verbal methods was helpful to them. Um, but that might be different if you have younger students, but finding ways to check in with those students, to check in that if you um, have a hunch that they may be feeling anxious about something, just double checking that they are understanding the instructions um, and, and trying to ensure that that's an active communication process. So rather than, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine, because uh, that might be the easiest response to make if you're feeling really anxious. Trying to make that a little bit more active. So how are you going to start this? Tell me what you're going to do first, you know, and actually giving some structure and support in that in that activity and really uh, checking their comprehension and giving them the opportunity to ask answer a specific question about how they might approach the next task. And that kind of leads us into uh, support for academics, because that's something that has come in our recent research, uh, hasn't attracted a lot of attention in the research previously. But um, when we uh, asked current students, primary and secondary age, what were the biggest impacts of their anxiety at school? They actually talked about academic impacts as being the, the most, um, the having the biggest, uh, being the issue that was most impacted by their anxiety. And the things that they talked about were that when they were anxious, and again, on top of any other um, sensory needs or uh, communication differences or other uh, autism characteristics that they may um, have, when they were worried, it was harder to do their best schoolwork. Uh, to learn and concentrate on their work and to start their work. And I think that gives us some really nice ways in as well. So if we uh, think, if that sounds like a student that uh, teachers have in their classroom, thinking about, okay, when we start an activity, how am I going to check in? How am I going to um, maybe provide some additional scaffolding or support to assist this student to start their work? Or um, how can I provide an environment that's going to help them to best learn and concentrate? Um, 
do I need to provide the information in an additional format? So if they're finding it hard to listen, do I actually need to provide some written or pictorial instructions to support them to still um, have a go at this activity? Um, so I think they are some really nice ways that go back to um, being predictable and providing that support that builds that trust. Um, and I think, uh, I think that remembering that um, students may not be able to approach you about those things, but coming in and stepping in uh, in, a, in a predictable and reliable way, and uh, if where possible, doing that in a way that you've already discussed with the student. If you're feeling anxious, what is the best way that I can help you to start your work? Or what is uh, the best way that I can communicate with you? What would you find easiest? Um, if you can't get that information from the student, then of course you can ask caregivers or previous teachers, um, but the student should be your first go-to as to thinking about how can I provide that support? Fantastic, that's a, that's a great wrap up. And I, I think also, um, it's, it's a really good point to consider nonverbal ways to communicate in the classroom. Um, and I, I hadn't factored in before how much that would help with anxiety as well, but there's some really simple things that teachers can do to either communicate a lesson or outcomes, or even just here's a nonverbal way to say, I'm feeling you know, angry or upset, or you know, need a bit of a time out. So there's so many ways that teachers can support um, in it, like in really tangible ways in the classroom for that and building that trust. Um, so yeah, did um, Dawn or Jack have anything to add to that particularly? I think just uh, Catherine's point around even verbally, people who are verbally able when they feel good uh, might find it hard to speak when they're anxious or, or use language to communicate when they're anxious. And, you know, there's a definite recognition of using alternative communication methods now for many autistic people, you know, regardless of language ability when in their best mm -hmm. version of themselves so don't just assume because the student can speak uh, in your class and answer questions that when they're anxious they're going to be able to do the same because it's 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 mm -hmm. now very apparent from listening to autistic people that that doesn't always happen yeah really good point um so in terms of you know more formal kinds of uh supports you know psychology always seems to be the go-to but what else can help if we've got a student that's that's feeling anxious so we did a bit of research on this because we know the psychology is uh hard hard to access um and mm. what was interesting when we asked parents and we asked teachers about the most effective strategies to uh use to reduce anxiety in the classroom not a single one of them said psychology and not a single one of them said cbt so uh, for me that's brilliant it gives us a great potential um so this was from the crc uh, longitudinal study we did so the middle columnist school um parent teacher collaboration and communication was mentioned by one in five parents as being the most helpful thing to help their child uh, reduce their child's anxiety providing a quiet safe quiet location or time alone for the student 15 percent routines and predictability and similarly preparing or practicing in advance and of course that goes back to the uh, anxiety around the unknown that we were talking about and in a separate study just in case you think that's one we had two other studies asking similar things and they again parent teacher collaboration and communication came up um, student focus supports routines so it's exactly the same thing comes up time after time in different studies so uh 
in the Clark and Adams studies, we asked what were the unsupported things and uh, parents told us change, unpredictability, noise, time pressures, and their needs not being felt to be supported. So it's a very consistent message from um, the multiple perspectives that actually having a consistency, having communication, working as a team to support the student, and then that leads into good supports. Um, none of that requires a psychologist. So I'm not trying to do us out of a job, uh, but <laughs> I think it just gives you the potential to make change while they're waiting or not accessing psychology. Great point, Catherine or Jack? Um, I think um, I think some of the some of the strategies um, that perhaps you would use in a psychological setting um, that aren't actually necessarily a therapy can be really useful um, to implement as well. Really basic things um, and particularly keeping in mind um, what we talked about earlier around things like interoception and body signals. Um, taking, taking, you know, two minutes out to take 10 deep breaths um, or, um, you know, progressive muscle relaxation is something that, that um, I had a teacher do in high school with the class and was always, you know, a favourite activity um, for the class and really beneficial. Um, a lot of autistic adults are actually quite opposed to CBT, um, cognitive behavioural therapy, um, but are much more supportive of um, strategies like mindfulness, um, which again are sort of therapeutic strategies that also are really easy to implement outside of a psychological con um, context. Um, things, things like yoga um, take um, a lot from sort of basic mindfulness techniques um, and, and can be really helpful in just learning how to establish a bit of a calmer baseline um, that you can then um, find your way back to, I guess, when you are in a more heightened state. And the work from uh, OTs that often do about emotion recognition, all of that will feed in. If you can begin to recognise anxiety when it's 30, 40 percent rather than 80 or 90 percent, it's much easier to use those strategies Jack was talking about to bring it back down. So um, I think uh, working with therapies together to realise how can we, you know, the focus is anxiety. What can the speeches do what can the OT do what can the uh, psychologist do and working together is really helpful because uh, if you can't recognize your emotions and, and, and then they suddenly become 99 out of 100 that you must be anxious about getting anxious at that point <laughs> so and even uh, for children that don't use uh, language as a pr primary form of communication you know, we can still do relaxation we can still have predictability there's still a lot of things we can do um, like Catherine would say about being a predictable teacher, having a predictable ways, um, having time to calm down and focus work across the spectrum. And I think um, that it's, I'm really glad that you brought up the interoception and recognising that emotions because someone has asked for, you know, how students on the autism spectrum, might, how we might be able to help them recognise those feelings of anxiety. So uh, uh, things like breathing apps or mindfulness or those kinds of things, are they a good starting point? Um, actually, a, uh, a friend and colleague of mine, uh, Emma Goodall, who is an autistic educator and researcher, um, has put a huge amount of effort recently into developing a, um, a program um, to help autistic students uh, develop interoceptive skills 
Um, it's been trialed in, uh, I believe in South Australian classrooms um, and the, uh, the outcomes are just staggering in terms of the benefits it has. Um, it's, it's a really incredibly effective program. Um, it is, I believe, freely available. Um, I, it's published, I think it's published by the South Australian government. Um, I do not have a link at hand, I'm afraid. Um, um, if you were to Google interoception, autism, South Australia, some, some combination of those words, um, I imagine it will come up. Um, yeah. And yeah, freely available and um, definitely um, a, a great place to start. Fantastic. But I'm just noticing the time and um, I just wanted to kind of wrap it up by asking each of you what your one key takeaway, um, what's your one key takeaway that you would want teachers to know when it comes to anxiety in the, in the classroom? So uh, anxiety is an internal process. You may be able to see the behavioural expression of that and that's what we need to probably look for, especially in, you know, uh, individuals who aren't verbally able to tell us are anxious but don't expect to see what you might think of when you experience anxiety so um realizing it's an internal subjective experience and then the second part it's two messages really but behavior behavior is communication it, that it comes back to that behavior is telling you something is it telling you there's too, they're anxious about something that's coming up. Is it telling you the lights are too bright? Is it telling you they're worried about something? Uh, and having those open eyes to understanding that behaviour might be your uh, easiest way of spotting anxiety in autistic students. I think um, following on from that too, you know, sometimes the anxiety, we may not always see the signs. And sometimes we may not always see the signs of the difference that we're making to a student, that that relationship or that communication might look a little bit different. Uh, if you haven't got a lot of experience teaching autistic students, or even if this student is just different to the students you've taught before, but um, remembering the power that you have as that main person in that environment for that student, that environment that might be really difficult and challenging for them for all of the reasons that we've talked about today. And, um, and so just taking that power and, and thinking about how you can support the building of the relationship with that student so that you've got that communication with them and uh, and then you can start to have that dialogue about what what support is going to help them best. Yeah, I I think um, Dawn and Catherine have summed it up really well. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that there is one key takeaway that, uh, that, that I can come up with. I think it's, there, there's so many things, um, but um, yeah, you know, the, the respect and communication with the student, I think is really key. Um, listening to, to them, working with them um, as much as possible um, and, and getting to know each student's normal as well and recognizing when something is different from their normal um, is, is really important to, to understanding when something is not quite right. Amazing. Well, um, that's the end of our webinar. Thank you again, Dawn, Catherine and Jack for sharing your time you. and insights with us. Um, I feel like I have a much greater understanding of anxiety. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Um, and I'd also like to thank all of our listeners for joining today. Mm -hmm. I hope you found this webinar really informative and insightful. And I encourage you to keep this professional learning going by registering on Inclusion Ed. 
Uh, registration is completely free and it is jam-packed with evidence-based and research-informed teaching practices, strategies and resources to help you support your diverse learners, including a lot of the ones that we've discussed today, including you know, routines, visual schedules, visual supports. So check it out at inclusioned.edu.au. Uh, and you can also follow our Inclusion Ed Facebook page and support your teaching community by taking part in sharing and learning in the community of practice. So thank you so much, everyone. Have a lovely evening. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find out more by going to inclusioned.edu.au to access a suite of free resources to help you support diverse learners in inclusive classrooms. You can also join the Inclusion Ed Community of Practice Facebook group for regular posts about our practices, as well as strategies and ideas from other education professionals.